Today, you have a chance to become a premium member of the podcast. Click one of the premium membership levels and you can get everything from a free book by an ag arts artist to free postcards to extra bonus interviews to the chance to have a piece of writing critiqued by me and a free workshop or reading by Mary Swander. So go to those show notes, scroll down and click to become a premium member. Thank you so much for your support. Today I bought my own tombstone. No, I'm not ill. I haven't felt better in years. But I recently updated my will, and my lawyer suggested that I get my end-of-life affairs in order. She referred me to a funeral home in town. Now, do you have a cemetery plot? The funeral director asked, going down a checklist he had had me download. Well, sort of, I said. How do you sort of have a cemetery plot, he asked. I explained that my mother's family homesteaded in western Iowa. They experienced the first white settler death in the area, so they sectioned off part of their farm, had a priest bless it, and then on this strip of land became the Sacred Heart Cemetery. My great-aunt Julia, who died in her youth, occupied the first plot, her grave marked with a small, plain, white stone with only her first name engraved on the top. A larger white granite family headstone rose up out of the flatland, assuming center stage. The names and birth and death dates of my great-grandparents and Julia are engraved on the family stone. Then the markers of their nine other children filled in the surrounding spaces. In childhood, I walked that land with my grandmother over and over again. We put flowers on our relatives' graves on Memorial Day. We stopped, crossed ourselves, and knelt down in prayer at the family gravestones. My grandmother named each of the relatives. Here's my brother Bob, she said, confusing me. The stone read, Fred. He loved birds and knew their calls. So we called Fred Bob White, then just Bob. And here's where I will eventually be. My grandmother indicated the plot next to my grandfather, who was the latest addition to the cemetery. And there's enough room here for anyone else who would like a plot. My mother was eventually buried next to her parents, and my brother found his final resting place a few paces down the line, closer to the railroad cut with its few remnants of original tall grass prairie, the bright blue clear horizon stretching for miles above him. Well, I think I've got a plot between my mother and my brother, I told the funeral director. But you don't know? When my mother died, I had gone to the priest to secure my mother's plot. He had pulled out a piece of paper, faded and yellowed, the corners eaten off by mice, the plots penciled in in a scramble of unintelligible markings. Hard to know who's where, the priest muttered. We'll bury your mother next to her parents and hope for the best. The best did not happen. 
On the morning of my mother's funeral, the gravedigger called me just a couple of hours before the service. Did you have another sibling, he asked. No, just two brothers. Maybe someone who died young? No, that would be my Aunt Julia. Someone more your age. What's happened? Well, the digger had hit another coffin in my mother's plot, an unmarked casket of a child. I didn't know what to say, but an ingenious and practical Midwestern decision was finally made to dig a bigger hole, placing the unknown child's coffin at my mother's feet. Oh, there's plenty of room for both of them, the gravedigger said. There are a lot of pioneer cemeteries out there just like that, the funeral director finally said. If you want to be buried there, the best thing you can do is buy your own tombstone and stake your claim. I gave it some thought. Yes, I wanted to be buried in Sacred Heart Cemetery with the rest of my family. I'd lived in eastern Iowa most of my adult life in the middle of buggy land. I knew it would be more convenient to just be buried somewhere closer to my current home, but I didn't have a family history here as I did with Sacred Heart. And I'd once written a book of poetry called Driving the Body Back about transporting my mother's body back for burial. The long, dramatic poem had seen some success. It seemed only right to complete the tale with my own journey. Years ago, I'd had another idea. Many times in the past, I'd traveled to Ireland, searching and finally finding my mother's family farm and cemetery in Connemara. The lynches were buried on Omi Island, a sacred site, a small western island, the only place in the whole country where the dead were taken out to sea for burial. St. Brendan's graveyard was ancient, hollowed, filled with Celtic crosses and family plots of clans with deep roots and centuries of history with the place. You could stand on the lynch plot and look out toward the strand, watching the waves part at high tide and see the ruins of our tiny two-room cottage near the shore, squatting there on rocky, untillable soil, the gulls flying over, Another treeless open horizon. Ah, here it is, I said to myself. Here I feel connected. I found my real home. In the end, I will have my ashes strewn across the rocks, here at St. Brendan's. What a lovely ending to a good life. But that lovely ending ended one evening in Sweeney's pub. I'd walked there with my landlady's dog, Happy, trotting alongside me. The usual mist of rain suddenly turned to a downpour, the wind blowing up into a gale. In Sweeney's, I sat near the fire, a shivering, dripping mess. Two fishermen in slickers blew in through the door. They sat at the bar, water pooling under their stools. Did you get her done? The bartender asked. Ah, he's in one of the fishermen said, tipping back his pint of Guinness. But no more yanks, the other fisherman said. What can I do, the bartender said. The boxes of ashes just keep coming. In care of Sweeney's pub, 
the parcels say. Tell them we're full up over here. Or at least no more elaborate instructions. What did this one want? The bartender said. I noticed there was a note in the box. Ah, this one wanted to row out in a crack and then have it circle the bay, dropping bits of ashes as we went, praying the rosary the whole time. Did you make it out there all right? The bartender asked. We did, the fisherman said. And hail Mary, full of grace, just as we are about to sprinkle the ashes in the ocean, that gale came up. Oh, sure it did. Forget sprinkling the yank, I said. Hold on to your oar, or you and I are bound for St. Brendan's ourselves. I pounded the lid back on the box. Holy Mary, Mother of God. I just fecked the ashes in one big lump, sinking to the bottom of the sea. After that, I rethought my burial plans. I began to realize that the concept of home is transitory. Major forces, whether political, economic, religious, or agricultural, push people to distant lands, where they, in turn, push others out of their homes. At any given time, we are suspended in space. We only know a fraction of our clan. We can have an emotional connection with those who have come before us, but we can't really go back. One way or another, most of us live in a state of displacement. So I intend to have my stone installed in what I think is my plot in the Sacred Heart Cemetery in Carroll County, Iowa, and hope for the best. I've also left some simple instructions. At the gravesite, please read the ending of driving the body back. Then everyone can go and have a pint on me and from driving the body back. And when Frankie asks about the cemetery plot, I see my mother going under, hear the clouds break loose, the rain pelt down, you stand with me again under the canopy in your plastic bonnet, drawn tight under the chin. We watch the incense circle up into the sky, wait for the priests, the acolytes, all the other mourners to leave, and say one last prayer together. Then we tramp down the row, you bending to pull some weeds grown up around Jim's stone vowing to do a rubbing of Julia's, her dates so dim. When we reach the end, where the land drops off into the railroad cut, mud sliding down, raspberries tangling up, our eyes measure the space, and you say, there's enough room, at least for you and me. So here's an interesting arrangement of the tune Ashokan Farewell. It's played by Annie Chapman Brewer, who is an award-winning musician and composer. She's also the president of Ag Arts, and she is playing with her grandfather. Annie is on French horn, and her grandfather is on dobro a duo you will not hear anywhere else but on Mary Swander's Buggy Land. Mm -hmm. 
it's time to read from Plain Interests. Now, I was not keeping my eye on my renewal subscription form, and I missed the August issue. And the November issue has uh, a lot of references to it, and I'm having to fill in the blanks, which is kind of fun. And I thought you might like to do that, too. So there's a letter to the editor here that's right out of Ecclesiastes. It's titled, A Time to Be Quiet. I reverently agree with the author of A Time to Be Quiet on the front page of the August issue. And I feel our worst paragraph could be added concerning when people are being seated for the funeral. Perhaps the cousins and our nephews are being seated 20 minutes before the funeral is scheduled to start. This is a good time for deep thoughts and silent prayers and should not include casual visiting. There is a time to visit and a time to be quiet. And the next letter to the editor is called Some Questions Concerning a Tradition. And the tradition is the wake at a funeral. Now, I came out of the Irish Catholic tradition, and the wake was explained to me like this. In the old days, without a doctor, a nurse, a stethoscope, sometimes it was hard to tell if the person was dead or alive. And so they pronounced them dead, but they sat up with the body just to make sure it didn't move. And during this time, as the Irish tend to do, there was a lot of storytelling, some songs, some jokes, some pranks, which may seem odd to others in different traditions. And in the corner, they had they delegated the mourning to keeners. There would be a couple women in the corner who oh, would sing and chant and ah, pray and let out all the tragic emotions for the whole group while the rest of the family carried on in a lighter mode. So here's some questions about wakes. The front page article in August 2023 brought about a discussion with several age-old questions. Sitting up with a dead body in the several nights preceding the funeral, why do we do that? Why or how did this practice start? If we really don't know, other than it's our tradition, then why do we continue to practice it? Are there any scriptural or sensible reasons to continue? Are there any scriptural reasons to discontinue? Several reasons offered were that back then in the log cabin days, some homes were so overrun with rodents, the light was lit and several men sat around the casket to guard against rodents eating away at the dead body. Another reason given was that at one time, gold was used as a tooth filler. So men sat around to keep the body from being stolen by thieves and the gold extracted. Both of these reasons seem shallow and shady. But even if this really were the reason, neither one is a logical reason anymore. 
Our homes are not overrun with rodents, and gold is no longer used as a tooth filler. I'm not trying to open a can of worms, but I would like some sensible answers. And, by the way, the reason the men were visiting while sitting up is in an effort to stay awake. I know, because I have been there. So visiting is for a reason, and we hope you can bear with us. Might this cross-confliction be reason to discontinue the practice? And that comes from an Amish community in Iowa. We're traveling now to Wisconsin with a story that was printed this week in the budget, the other Amish newspaper. And this happened on Tuesday evening, October 10th, where young Rudy J. Stutzman, 15, took to the woods, bow in hand, possibly envisioning large antlers, like most hunters do this time of year. After being in his neighbor's woods for a while, a black object, whoops, black bear comes padding through the woods following the trail that the young hunter had taken. Bear follows trail all the way to the tree stand and then sniffs, slowly starts one step, then another step up the young hunter's stand. After a few steps, hunter thinks bear should leave and gives a good woof, which slows bear, and then another woof, and bear decides tis enough and backs down the tree stand and wanders slowly away, but still within view of our young hunter. Now, tis getting late, and hunter should leave for home, but bear still too close for comfort. So let's just stay put. After a while, you wouldn't think, but here comes bear number two down the same trail, right up the tree stand. And all jokes aside, starts up our young hunter's stand just like bear number one. I had done only this time, and it's getting dark, and hunter uses his headlight to shine down on the bear and notices right away this slick black hair and sparkling eyes, a mere eight feet away. Looking up, nothing. Goes our hunter again. Still, bear is not easily scared away. Hunter thinking something needs to be done and gives another too good woof. And black bear backs slowly down to the ground and leaves. After two bears are far enough away, Hunter takes the exit route, and I imagine his tracks could easily have been 10 feet apart had anybody bothered to measure them. So I'm back in uh, plain interest, leaving the best for the last here. And uh, I don't, as I said, I don't know what went on in the August issue, but there's a little uh, letter that says, due to the large number of responses we received concerning the song titled, May I Sleep in Your Barn Tonight, Mister, we despaired of returning everyone's letter. 
Oh, this is coming from the editor, I presume, of Plain Interest. However, some readers would like to have a copy of the whole song. Would you? Oh, no, it isn't. Would you mind printing the song somewhere in Plain Interest? A special thank you to all who took time to send us a reply. So that comes from the Millers in Illinois. So something went on with this song, and everybody wants a copy, which I thought I would read you the song, and you make up your own mind if you would like a copy. Maybe we could start a new contest. All right. May I sleep in your barn? One night it was dark and was storming. When along came a tramp in the rain, he was making his way to some station to catch a long-distance train. May I sleep in your barn tonight, mister? It is cold lying out on the ground, and the cold north winds they are whistling, and I have no place to lie down. I have no tobacco nor matches, and I am sure I would do you no harm. I will tell you my story, kind mister, for it goes through my heart like a storm. It was three years ago this last summer. I will never forget that sad day when a stranger came out from the city, and at our house he would stay. This stranger was tall, fair, and handsome, and he looked like a man who had fled in his eyes with a sad look upon him as he wanted to stop for his bread. My wife thought she'd like to be earning some money to add to our house, and the thoughts that finally were stated that the stranger would stay in our home. One night coming home from my workshop, whistling and singing with joy, expecting a kind-hearted welcome from my sweet, loving wife and my boy. But what should I find but a letter? It was placed in the room on a stand, and as soon as my eyes fell upon it, I picked it right up in my hand. This letter said my wife and the stranger had left and had taken my son now I wonder if God up in heaven ever knew what the stranger had done. Kind of a poem that takes words right out of my mouth that I'm reading from Plain Interest, and you too could have a copy. Stay tuned for the next contest. And stay tuned for my next monologue here on Mary Swander's Buggy Land. Back in Free Martin Town this summer and fall, we experienced a different story. The crop dusters had just disappeared into the horizon, the roar of their motors replaced by the voices of my Amish neighbors. They sang a cappella in four-part harmony, the men's voices deep and resonant, the women's high and tinkling, drifting over the cornfields. My English neighbor Donna and I sat on her front step listening to the Yutzis, their voices drifting toward us from the other side of the slope. Sound carries far in the country, and though we could not see them, we could clearly hear every note our neighbors sang. We could imagine the family gathered around Bertha's hospital bed that had been shoved close to the sliding door that looked out on the screen porch. Bertha's long struggle with cancer was coming to an end. 
The Amish find a connection to the divine through song and a cappella singing. No instruments, no moving or processing about, no tears or emotive displays of sorrow, just the family singing, each holding a hymnal, circling the bed, giving their dying mother comfort to carry her into the next world. Donna and I sat in silence, knowing that we were experiencing a tragic but sacred moment, a moment only meant for the family. At the same time, we were in a globally inclusive scene, each note floating in the clear air above the crops, a blessing to all living things, both flora and fauna, that would someday become one with the earth. In the past, I'd been privileged to hear the Amish sing at the bedside of their loved ones. Over a decade ago, the neighbor girl down the road was injured in a terrible accident. Lena and her brother were driving home in the cart when it began to rain. Her brother popped open their umbrella, and that was enough to spook the horse. Frantically fleeing the sound, the horse galloped down the lane, turning over the cart. The brother pitched out into the grass. Lena wasn't so lucky. The neighborhood was warned she was in the hospital with just days to live. But she did live with a severe brain injury. The whole family gathered, praying and singing. After a few months, she was moved to a rehabilitation unit in Des Moines. I drove there to see her. And when I stepped into her room, her parents and eight siblings were circled around her bed, singing. Lena was still in a coma and unresponsive. Her brother had a pad of paper and a pencil and asked her to sign her name. I know it looks hopeless, her father told me in the hallway, but the doctor told us to put her through the tasks of a normal day. Then it was time to take Lena to physical therapy. Come on, Mary, her aunt said. Her brothers pushed her hospital bed down the corridor to the PT unit. I trailed behind. In a large gym, once again, the family circled her bed, massaging her limbs, bending her elbows and knees, and improving her circulation. The singing commenced, filling the space, Lena unable to open her eyes. I tiptoed out of the room, loving the music and the connection, but feeling like the family was going through the motions of a cruel drama. After weeks that turned to months, Lena came back home, standing, then walking in a stiff manner, tilted to one side. Her parents worked with her in every way they knew how, taking her to more PT, massage, and acupuncture appointments. Slowly, her speech began to return. Then she could grasp objects with one hand. I went to see her every time I stopped in her aunt's store. Finally, we were able to converse. Her boyfriend, who had stayed by her side throughout this ordeal, set a date for their wedding. This is a total miracle, I thought. I couldn't get the singing out of my mind. A few years after Lena's wedding and the arrival of her first baby, another neighbor called me to take them to the hospital in town. Mervyn, the gross daddy or grandpa of the family, was ailing, going downhill so fast that the doctor had hospitalized him, and once again the whole neighborhood feared for the worst. 
I arrived at the family's door thinking I would be taking his daughter and son-in-law to the hospital. But the journey required three separate trips with a total of 15 passengers carrying blankets, picnic baskets, and small infants in their arms. Come along with us, Mary. You'll want to say hello to Mervyn, his daughter told me on the last trip. In the hospital room, I found Mervyn on oxygen, breathing heavily. No nurses or aides were in sight. Chaos surrounded Mervyn with a nursing mother in the bathroom, toddlers running across the floor, and adults making sandwiches and opening jars of homemade pickles on his nightstand. The whole family plopped down wherever they could find space and ate supper, pouring coffee from thermoses. Ice cream magically appeared in small cardboard cups. At last the supper finished, the family gathered around Mervyn's bed, hymnals and hands, and sang, the room filling with the sound. A nurse opened the door and peeked in. Her eyes widened. I'm a traveling nurse, she said between hymns, and I knew that the Lord sent me to this hospital for a reason. I have never heard anything so beautiful. A few days later, the family asked me to go to the hospital again, this time to take Mervyn home. He was better enough to be discharged. He survived for five more years. Unfortunately, Bertha didn't survive. Ira ranks number two for cancer mortality. But on her front porch, Donna and I agreed that the music was especially soothing to the soul. In our English world, death is usually hidden away in hospices and nursing homes. The dying are often ghosted or shunned. We English will turn away from vulnerability. And we get so enmeshed in the politics and pressures of our lives, we find it difficult to be present for someone else even a loved one we are about to lose. Here in the Amish world, death is out in the open, surrounded by family and community. Here, death hovers just above the tips of the corn tassels, carrying the refrain. God is
himself did offer, Jesus my Savior paid all I owed. Therefore I'll say again, God loves me dearly, God loves me dearly, loves even me. Now I will praise you, O love eternal, now I will praise you all my life long. Therefore I'll say again, God loves me I'm happy to announce that Buggy Land is now part of the Iowa Podcasters Collaborative, a group of podcasters creating content related to news, culture, and more. We're organized by the indomitable Robert Leonard. This group arose from the Iowa Writers Collaborative under the leadership of Julie Gamak. Here I've joined the ranks of so many talented writers, including Pulitzer Prize winner Art Cullen, Douglas Burns, Laura Bellin, and Damon James. The Writers Collaborative is a network of Substack pages, each writer in his or her own realm, but all linked together. I've created two Substack pages. On the first page, Mary Swander's Buggyland, you will get transcripts of Buggyland monologues and interviews, photos, and extra commentaries. On the second page, called Mary Swander's Emerging Voices, you will read young, diverse writers commenting on current social justice issues. Please subscribe. It's free, or if you care to, you can donate some money at substack.com. S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. And that brings our episode to an end. We were produced by Rick Brewer of Brew Ha Ha Audio Productions in our studios on Main Street in sunny Fremartentown. We had support today and would like to thank the Cinepid Fund, the Iowa Arts Council, the Warner Ellithorpe Fund at the Oregon Community Foundation, and the Calio Levine Fund, and all of you who have sent us individual, private donations. We welcome your support. Like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe and never miss a podcast. Become a member or simply go to our website, agarts.org, and hit that red donation button. See you next time. Brouhaha. And then another whoop!